Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this episode, I'm talking to Tom Diamond about sailing round the world with his friend James on their yacht, Blue Eye. Tom talks about some of the highlights as well as the challenges and also the mindset around leaving. In the end, you just have to get going. You can prepare as much as you can, but then you have to set sail and face whatever comes along the way, because you can never prepare for everything. I also appreciated Tom's thoughts on being hooked on the horizon. That sense that we will only be fulfilled if we just make it to that island, or achieve that goal, or do that thing, or meet that person... It's the sense of always living in the future, and I know I've been guilty of this. But perhaps the pandemic has taught us how to live in the present so much more, because our plans have so often fallen apart, that we have learned to live for the right now, and be grateful for the small things. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Tom today. Tom Diamond is the author of Wrongs of Passage and Hooked on the Horizon, Sailing Blue Eye Around the World. So welcome, Tom. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So let's start out with a big question. Why did you want to sail around the world and what drove you to the sea? Uh, well, I was already on the sea, actually, um, in one form already. I was, I was working on a soup yacht as a deckhand on one of these great big things that are owned by the millionaires. And so I was already getting my taste for the ocean and what it offered, but it didn't have as much freedom, I suppose, as I would have liked. It was a hard working job. It was a great job, but it was hard work. And at the same time, serendipitously, two of my best mates from school who were back in England had thought to um, buy a boat of their own and do their own travels on, on that. So as soon as they told me what they were doing, I I twisted their arms and made sure that I was allowed to be involved. And mm. yeah, there, there was never a moment, I don't think, where I wasn't, I wasn't keen to do it. So yeah, it all came about not really because of me, but I, the stars aligned and I, I jumped at the opportunity. Well, then we have to go back even further. How are you working as a deckhand? I, I always feel like there's something for, that drives people to the sea. It's a certain, I don't know, character thing. Yeah, I, I had no experience of the sea up until then. It was just a bit of nepotism, really. The, the opportunity sort of came to my door, and um, it wasn't one that I wanted to shirk away from, having just come out of university and want, knew I wanted to do some travelling, and being a deckhand or a stewardess for young people is a great way to earn a bit of money and see a bit of the world. So it was a really wonderful opportunity, and, and I loved it. So tell us about the uh, tell us about the boat Blue Eye because you mentioned there that the super yachts obviously were really really massive but I don't think mm. that's the size of the boat you were sailing in. No, yeah, that's right. Um, Blue Eye was a Nicholson thirty two, 
which means that she was a Nicholson design and was 32 foot long, which is roughly 10 meters for those that don't know. So when she was built in the 70s, that was a, a reasonable size. But nowadays, cruising boats tend to be much, much bigger. And certainly in comparison to the size of the boat I was working on, it was a very, a very different life. But, you know, she was great for what James and I, James was my friend who, who owned the boat, um, for the purposes that we needed her for. She was perfect, really, because she's a really, really sturdy. Nicholson is a, a very reliable design. In the 70s, they were building them with fiberglass and they hadn't been using it for too long. So their philosophy was just stick on as much fiberglass as possible so she won't break, which was brilliant. So she was really seaworthy, but she was quite slow, which was a drawback, but we weren't necessarily in a rush. So yeah, she was brilliant for what we needed, albeit a little bit on the smaller side. Yeah. So well, describe it a bit more, because I know I've been on boats, uh, but a lot of people haven't. Like, were you and James sharing a, a little cabin or were there bunks down there? What was it like to live on the boat, to call a boat home? Um, we were, there was sort of two separate rooms. There was the fore cabin where one of us would sleep um, alongside a whole load of stuff that we would shove up there because there was never the space for it. And occasionally, if we were, you know, trying to sleep at sea and the boat would tilt over, all of that stuff would come crashing down upon you. So the the fore, de- uh, fore cabin wasn't necessarily the best place to be. And then back from there, there was a small uh, heads, as they call it in nautical terms, which is the toilet. And then that was a very small area. And then back from there again was the main cabin where the other one of us would sleep. And that had everything really that we needed to to live that had a small little galley or kitchen, um, which included an oven with a couple of hobs and um, sink and a little place for all our food to go. And then it had a chart table with all of our navigational equipment and then two bunks along the sides, port and starboard, with a table in the middle where we would eat and plot our course and talk and, and drink beer whenever we got our hands on it. Um, so, yeah, she was everything we needed, but, uh, yeah, small. <laughs> everything you needed and nothing more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so how did you work up to that circumnavigation? Obviously, you had some experience as a deckhand, but that's not mm. quite the same. So what did you have to learn? Well, <laughs> on my part, I'd had to learn more or less everything. James grew up sailing with his dad, and his dad was, you know, supporting us from from the beginning or supporting James from the beginning of this whole thing and he really showed us the rope so to speak uh, and James in particular and got James into a position where he was ready to take Blue Eye out on his own and skipper it so he would do a lot of weekend trips with friends and that was whilst I was still working on the super yacht so whilst I was on the super yacht um, I did a day skipper course which is run by the RYA which is a five-day course, which allows you to skipper a boat in coastal waters. So that was my first sailing um, experience, apart from the odd bit of dinghy sailing here and there. And then because up to because the super yacht, sorry, was a motor yacht, so there was obviously quite a distinction there. And then when I came back to England and, and joined James, he really taught the rest taught the rest to me, really, as much as he knew. Um, and we were really determined to be as ready as we could be. Obviously, um, you do hear. On, on the YouTube channels quite often, people who claim to have left land without any idea as to what they're doing. I'm not really sure if that's true, and if it is, it's not very sensible, because obviously the sea can be a dangerous and strange place. So we really wanted to make sure we were in you know the best condition we could be, and that the boat was in the best best condition as well. 
so that involved all sorts of work to it from getting the um the rigging replaced getting the engine replaced having the sails checked uh, making sure the electronic navigation would work and the electrics would work so there's all there's you have to really go back to basics and learn everything from the start because everything has to work and you have to have good enough knowledge of it that once you're out there you know how to fix it or how to bodge it as we would often do and of course if one of you was sick or injured the other one would have to do it on their own basically yeah yeah exactly and there, there were certainly were times where one or the other of us were were down with seasickness and it was up to the other person i mean that would quite often luckily happen when we were far away from land and that i don't know if that might sound bad but actually <laughs> There's less to bump into. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Ocean sailing or open sea sailing is is kind of the best stuff, really. Like, there's not too much that can go wrong. Whereas if you're going around the coastline and one of you's being sick or, or has broken something, or you know, that would be really hard. Unfortunately, we never had that situation to deal with because, yeah, the the open ocean is is easy, really. It's the rest of it that's the trouble. <laughs> which is really interesting oh, okay so you've mentioned seasickness we have to talk about that because mm. I I have had I have been seasick when I, I did a blue water trip from Fiji to Anavatu and it oh, was right. yeah it was about 12 hours of really really wanting to die and then oh, it no. passed yeah it like passed and it was fine for the rest of the trip and so I but also there's medication and things isn't there so what did the pair of you do about that it sounds like you've had a few bouts yeah well the first lesson that we had to learn was not to have too many beers the night before, I think. That, really <laughs> that doesn't <scary>. count. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, I, it, it was really interesting, actually. It, it, I think it depends on the individual because I would quite often get seasick on the super yacht I was working on because the motion was a very sort of prolonged roll. But on Blue Eye, which was much smaller, the, the motion could quite often be quite choppy. And that didn't seem to bother my inner ear too much. Um, unfortunately, it did bother James's inner ear a bit more often. But he he's of the type where he knows that he just has to kind of get up and get on with it and deal with it. And so, yeah, I mean, he would pr- try and preempt preempting it was always the best thing to do. Make sure that you take your seasickness tablets in advance, I think, because mm. uh, once it's on set, I think it's kind of it's with you then and you just have to wait it out. And it will eventually go. My stepdad was unfortunate enough to have it for about week I think when he joined us for our Atlantic Ocean crossing and I had sort of lured him on with the idea that it was going to be a really gentle easy way I mean I was saying just a moment ago that I love the ocean sailing but unfortunately for him on that uh, crossing the first week we were just battered by winds from every direction and it was really really unpleasant (laughs) and he, he spent the whole time dangling over the side of the boat and James and I were trying to feed him crackers and water but he wasn't having it um, but eventually he got over it. So sometimes you just have to wait these things out, I'm afraid. Yes. Yeah, I found it did resolve. But yes, medication, people listening, if you want to go yeah. <laughs> do this type of thing. But um, so you, what were some of the highlights of the journey, the things you still remember? Oh, well, well, sport for choice, really. So I, I suppose to give a, a synopsis of, of how we went, we did across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, through the Panama Canal, down through the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand, where we waited for the cyclone season to pass through, which was six months. And then we went back up through South East Asia, across to Sri Lanka, across the Red Sea and up through there, through Suez Canal, 
through the Mediterranean, through the French canals, and then back to England. So from all that, I mean, we were so lucky to to do all of that and see the things that we did. I think the the area of the world which I would not hesitate to be dropped back into would be the Pacific. It's another world, really. It's an amazing place. And in particular, the, the ocean crossing from Galapagos to the Marquesas, um, which took us 24 days, which was quite quick, actually. We were quite pleased with it. But we didn't see another soul for that whole time that we were out there. It was just me and James and another friend of ours um, who joined us frequently throughout. And it was just brilliant. It was just three mates hanging out on a boat and the weather was perfect the whole way. We were catching fish. We were watching birds. We were seeing the spray of whales in the distance. And yeah, I wouldn't replace that experience for anything. It was really incredible. Mm. And I suppose in terms of some of maybe the, the places we went to, New Zealand has got to be the most beautiful country. I know that there's somewhere that you're very familiar with and are heading back to soon. Mm. I'm very, very jealous to hear. <laughs> and, and some of the maybe the lesser known ones, we were in Sudan of all places. And even whilst the 2019 revolution was going on, but you, you know, that was happening in Khartoum. We were along the coastline and it's a gorgeous coastline and the people there are so friendly. Um, which is an absolute cliche, but honestly, just the people who have the less give the most. And they're really amazing. And I remember one particular evening, we had anchored up in a, a small secluded bay, and then some Sudanese fishermen came in as well, and they called us over to their boat, and we sat with them and we drank their coffee. And no, we couldn't speak Arabic, and they couldn't speak English particularly, but it sort of didn't really matter. We were just enjoying each other's company and, and the delicious coffee. and. Yeah, I mean, things like that, which I'll remember forever. It was amazing. It's so funny that, I mean, that's, it's, it's the Red Sea, isn't it? That area. Yeah. And, and people, I think when you say Sudan, people are like, but that's Africa. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, yes, Africa is on, on the Red Sea. And, and then, of course, you went up through the Suez Canal. That's what you said, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, And you also mentioned the French Canal. So you've talked about the open ocean being amazing. How different was it to go through these canal systems? Yeah, very different, um, in particularly in the French canals, because we had to take the mast down so that we could fit under the bridges. So I can't remember exactly where it was now. We arrived near Toulon in the south of France, and a crane had to take the mast out of Blue Eye. And then we had built some supports for the mast to lie across the deck on the boat. And then we sort of lashed everything that was otherwise, you know, not secure onto the mast and, and set up through the canals. Um, thinking that it would be a very uh, serene and easy way to get home. Um, but it actually turned out to be a lot of hard work because going up and down the locks in, in Europe is, is hard. And uh, we were hit by a couple of heat waves as we went, which really knocked out of us. I think it was when France recorded 46 degrees that summer. So oh, that was far too much to bear. Uh, so, I mean, absolutely beautiful way to travel through France. But not as easy as we'd thought, because when you're on the ocean, there's not much to do. You set the course and then you, one of you stays awake in the cockpit. And that, that can be hard at times. You know, your sleepers can be lacking. But in general, you get into a, a routine and ocean life is relatively straightforward. But going through the canals, there's so much to think about and constantly relying on an engine, which occasionally was prone to braking and occasional running aground in the canal, which were because that summer was so hot, actually, one of the 
waterways were shut because there wasn't enough water in the reservoir to top it up. So there was a moment where we thought that we wouldn't actually be able to squeeze through and we would have to turn around. But yeah, I mean, that was one of the fantastic parts of the way that we traveled was it was so varied in crossing oceans, going down coastlines, going up rivers and, and through canals. Yeah, we, we were so lucky to be able to do it. When you're visiting all these different places, I mean, I feel like now sort of post-pandemic, even globally, we might be in more of a contactless payment world. But did you have to take different currencies and uh, or, or were you relying on US dollars, for example, in different parts uh, of the world? Yeah, good question. We, uh, yeah, US dollars work everywhere, as you can imagine. Um, so it was, it was a good idea to have a stash of them. Most places have been touched by globalization now it is it was an astonishing thing to see even out in the isolated islands of of the pacific almost everywhere would have sort of satellite dishes and solar power and some form of internet connection so quite often you would be able to pay on card or or some sort of electronic way like that um but yeah also it was wise to have a good reserve of the cash that you needed for that country. And that was actually something we got pretty drastically wrong when we arrived to Eritrea, which is a country just south of Sudan. And we arrived there 28 days after having left Sri Lanka. So that was the longest amount of time that we spent at sea for the three years that we were away. And there was a lot to think about for that particular trip because we were going through the Gulf of Aden and up the Red Sea, which was has been known for its piracy problems and so there's a lot of admin involved you have to be in touch with the international navies and you have to let them know the countries know that you're coming and uh, there was a lot to think about and the one thing we forgot to think about or I forgot to think about in fairness because that admin was tended to be my domain was that we might need some cash when we arrived and uh, when we did arrive and we didn't have any cash it was quite obviously a problem because there was only there, well, at the time, there was only one cash point in Eritrea, and that was in the capital. Um, and to get to the capital, you needed to have a visa. And to get the visa, you needed to pay in cash. So <laughs> there was no way that we could get it. So that was really sad, actually, because we ended up having to leave Eritrea, which we, uh, I mean, it was, our, it was our first taste of East Africa. And it seemed wonderful, but without the money to pay for a visa, we weren't able to stay. So we had to take back to sea again, which was not really what we had in mind, having just spent a month out there. And uh, we went to Sudan and luckily we had, uh, well, actually James's dad had got in touch with a boat, a yacht agent there called Mohammed, And he greeted us and, and he came and lent us a whole load of cash, which was so generous of him so that we could get to the bank and our parents had transferred us money by Western Union, which was not something I had ever used up until that moment. And we were able to pay back Mohammed and, and get over the fact that we hadn't had any. It was such a small amount of time to not have any money. And it, and obviously the horrible thing about it is that we were these wealthy Westerners coming to East Africa and we were having to borrow money from these people who didn't have very much. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, and it was a really strange and unpleasant situation to be in. And it, it put things in perspective, as you as you can imagine. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, you talked at the beginning about the life of the super yacht and you didn't have enough freedom. 
to do the things you want to do. And then what you're talking about there is, you know, we do live in a world where borders are really important and currencies are important and all these things do. I mean, in the romantic sense, getting on a boat and sailing around the world is is one wonderful idea. But then there's all these practicalities that mean it's not just freedom and the open ocean, is it? No, no. It was, uh, we quite often felt a bit peeved on the admin forms that you would have to sign what sign um or sorry fill in when you arrive to a country you'd have to fill in your employment status and we were obviously unemployed but if it certainly felt like a full-time job a lot of the time and it didn't really feel like that was a justification of what we were doing so yeah no I, I know what you mean yeah, it's interesting. So so the admin is one of the difficulties. And I think, look, to be honest, we're in pandemic times. That, and mm. we're, as you mentioned, we're going to New Zealand soon. And there's a lot of admin even to get on a, a plane these days as well. But were there any sort of other things that stood out as uh, difficulties? I mean, those are things that weren't even to do with the boat, really. Did you have any uh, interesting difficulties uh, with the boat? You mentioned earlier, you said the sea is a dangerous and strange place. Did you have some uh, difficult times out at sea? Yeah, we did. Um, only a few that were so bad as to feature heavily in, in the book that I wrote about the trip. But I think, in you know, you get used to the conditions that you're presented with and there you do just have to get on with it because once you're out there there's not there doesn't tend to be many places you can hide from it um but yeah i mean the, the one that sticks sticks out certainly is those first few days on the atlantic with my poor stepdad in tow with us and we had left um the cape verdes which is a small archipelago just off of senegal and we had gone a little hastily well certainly a little hastily in hindsight um forecast wasn't brilliant it wasn't bad but it didn't suggest that there was anything heavy out there in terms of wind and so we thought well we might as well just make a move we want to get to the caribbean so we'll set off and then we were just presented with this really um unreliable strange weather and it just kept on changing and we and it, it built over the course of a morning to the point where we were sailing down 45 knots of wind which was pushing up this really horrible sea and the only saving grace of it was that it was coming from behind us so if you're sailing with the weather then it's nowhere near as bad as sailing into it so it could have been a lot worse but it was not something that we were very much enjoying either and also not knowing at what point it would stop because it wasn't on the forecast at all so we weren't sure if it was going to keep on going up and up or if it was um if it was going to abate and luckily, in the, in the end, it did, and it turned out just to be one particularly bad day. But after that, we thought we probably won't um, leave land without a reliable forecast again in the future. Mm, yeah, that that seems really important. And mm. and what about any places that surprised you? I mean, obviously, you guys sounded like you did a lot of research. You were really well prepared. But sometimes, you know, we turn up at a place and it's not quite what we expected. Were there, were there any places like that? Yeah. Um, cool testing me now yeah there certainly was it was I think probably one place that we had heard that was a fantastic place to visit was the San Blas San Blas Islands in Panama um, which is an archipelago just to the east of it so before you before we went through the canal and we turned that was actually a little bit disappointing for us unfortunately but then the upshot of that was that we ended up going and traveling to some other islands around that area 
which we'd never heard of. And, and as far as we could tell, not many other people had. And they transpired to be fantastic. So, yeah, it was always a case of we'll try and figure out where we would like to go and, and what's recommended, but not so recommended that it's going to be really busy, which in the Caribbean in particular is a difficulty because there's a lot of boats there. And, but yeah, we, we would always just try and approach a new place with an open mind and, and figure out what it was all about. And invariably, most of the time, we had a great time there. So, And uh, so what was it like traveling with your friend James for three years? I mean, that's mm. I, I struggled enough just in lockdown with my husband. I mean, to be on a <laughs> boat for three years in just a tiny, tiny place. So how, how did that work and how did you manage it such close quarters? Yeah. I don't know if James knows, but I often refer to him as my sailing husband when I'm talking about <laughs> other people, which I think is apt, actually, because we did a lot of the people that we would meet uh, would, you know, other sailors, other long distance sailors would tend to be couples, uh, married couples, probably retired. And it was funny how there was this division of labor amongst them. The, the men would tend to do the engineering jobs, the technical jobs, and then the women would tend to do sort of the admin things. Not to perpetuate any gender stereotypes, but that was a very obvious thing that, that we observed. And I noticed that the same thing had happened between James and I. He was very much the technical one, and I was very much sort of the, I suppose, the planner um, at a, a larger level. Um, so I think that was really important to how we ended up getting on, really. Um, and we got on really well. I think. I, I mentioned it towards the end of my book. That was the most important thing for me was that we came home still friends and, and better friends than when we left. And, and that was by far our biggest achievement, which is not to say that there weren't moments where we you know, were at loggerheads. Everyone has their own egos and, and their own ideas about how things should be done. Um, but I think it was identifying for us uh, what might cause any friction and trying to steer away from it because we knew that we needed each other really, both as friends and, and sort of sailing buddies to get through that time. And we were both really determined to make sure that we finished what we'd started. And so I suppose in a, in a kind of practical sense, one way that we got around that was by the jobs. I mean, it was fortunate that we we're sort of different skills and different personalities that the things that we could contribute to the project were different and they complemented one another. So as I say, he was kind of more hands-on, practical man. He could um, fix the engine, which <laughs> needed fixing far more often than he would hope for. Whereas I kind of took a step back and would think about the big picture, like how do we get around the world in, in the set time and how do the things that are happening in the oceans affect us in terms of cyclone seasons and so on. And then I suppose at some point the the kind of decision-making authority would pass from one of us to the other. So James tended to be the one who would look in more detail at how a passage would work. And at some stage, I guess, from my sort of broader outlook, it would be passed down to his more detailed look at um, exactly how we were going to get from A to B. And I suppose in that grey area is where there was a possibility for disagreement. And so it was just really about identifying that and, and making sure that it didn't happen. And, and it, it worked, I think, in general. We got on really well. And it really helped that we also had other people. <laughs> it wasn't an, entirely analogous to um, lockdown. We could have other people come on the boat and sort of share the load and, and spice things up a little bit, as as our friend Will did and my stepdad and others who we met along the way. 
but yeah as i say i'm, I'm really happy and i'm proud of us that we managed to to make it work because mm. you know it, it, it wasn't guaranteed that it would oh absolutely and i mean three years is is a long time so how do you think you came back a, a different person what changed for you i think um I left with perhaps a slightly naive idea that sailing around the world would sort of, you know, com- complete anything missing in in my life and sort of just the instant gratification and happiness. And this is really what Hooked on the Horizon, the, the account that I've written about the book, about the trip, is trying to get at in that, you know, naively thinking that happiness would always be over the horizon it would always lie at the next island um you know we might be in antigua in the caribbean and i think well when we get to dominica then i'll be fulfilled and recognizing that pattern more and more has been really important to me and how i kind of deal with day-to-day things now um so i just think it's important to realize that you know there's always that that longing for for something more and how you deal with that i think is has been the the biggest lesson for me that i learned on the journey and which i'm I'm really grateful for i wonder about the longing and the sort of the hooked on the horizon idea i i always this is something i ponder on the show which is Mm. are there those of us who are born with some kind of wanderlust that is never satisfied and there are people who just don't understand us because they don't feel that they've never felt that and as as you rightly say I don't think it will ever go away I don't think it will ever be satisfied however much we we travel Do, do you think it's something that is just kind of innate that some people have and some people don't yeah it does seem to be doesn't it we all have those friends who who can't sit still for too long and they're off and then those who are extremely comfortable back home and there's no right or wrong in either way but yeah it is really interesting how how people differ in that and I do worry for people I mean this is something that I really noticed when I returned home and I felt sated in my travels and I didn't have any itchy feet for quite a long time and I mean going through a lockdown sort of helped because any possibility of leaving the country was swiftly removed but before that happened, speaking to a lot of friends about what they wanted to do, and I, I kind of wanted to warn them off slightly, you know, this idea, which I I recognised in them, what I think was in me prior to leaving on Blue Eye, that the idea that I'll get happy if I just, if I go off over there kind of thing. And so that was really what inspired me to, to take that angle with the book, because I thought, I think it's a really important lesson to mm. um, to learn and uh, it's not something that everyone struggles with and I'm envious of those who who don't seem to struggle with that I think um, to be fair James probably wouldn't say that he uh, went through exactly the same process as me or, or even though we were on the same boat I think perhaps that's something that I might have struggled with a little bit more but it was all part of the learning process and, and I like to think I'm a bit more capable now of dealing with those itchy feet and knowing what that might mean Yes, although now you've turned into a writer, which means mm. <laughs> you get the excuse of, right, I need to write another book. Where yeah. shall I go next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know how that works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I did want to ask you about coming home because 
you know, three years, all these amazing things happened. You, you're just every day has some kind of rhythm because you obviously have to move the boat or deal with the boat in some way. And mm. then you get back to England and people are like, oh, great to see you. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize you'd been away for so long. That always happens, right? And, yeah. and they're like, oh, yeah, oh, nice, nice. They want to see maybe three pictures, and then that's about it. So yeah. how how was the sort of re-entry into life when you got back? Was it a sort of massive anticlimax, or did you find that contentment you were talking about? Uh, I guess a little bit of both in some way. It was such a, a drastic change. I mean, one day we were sailing across the English Channel, back from France. And and the next, it was, well, within a week, was living back home with mum for a bit and planning what to do next. So it was a very strange moment. But I was fortunate, I think, in that I knew I wanted to write the book. Um, and in many ways, also, the, t- the trip was probably the perfect length because I was ready to, to come home I was starting to really miss family and friends and community and you know, English pubs and, and all the things that you think about when you're away and you're a little bit homesick. And so it was the right moment and things kind of fell into place for me after that. I moved to Bristol, which is where lots of my friends are living and that's been wonderful. It's a brilliant place to live. I became a postman, which is a great job to have and particularly good to complement writing a book. Um, so yeah, no, I, I really tried to taken in my stride and to appreciate the memories that I had gathered, but also to kind of um, do as I, as I was preaching, to, to remember that any desire to, to go off again is, is really only filling in something which might never actually be completely filled in some way. So it wasn't um, too bumpy a ride coming back to land, and I've really loved it, actually. It's been really nice to be back in the UK. It's, it's and the other thing that you get when you have been away for a long time is you appreciate what is on your doorstep. Um, you know, England and Wales, well, Wales is close to where I am, but I've heard Scotland are all incredible areas to travel with the world as people have been finding out now that staycation is the thing. But, you know, you really do gain an appreciation for, for what is right before you, which you might not have noticed. And so that's been another another great thing about the whole trip. Glad you said that because uh, I I left in the year two thousand and came back in twenty eleven. <laughs> <laughs> so I did pop back a few times during that yeah. you know eleven years to visit family. But we moved back here in twenty eleven, and uh, we appreciate my husband's a New Zealander, as we, we discussed, and it, yeah. I, we appreciate this country so much more for living elsewhere. Mm. And it kind of drives me a bit nuts sometimes when my my brothers and sisters, you know, haven't necessarily lived in, in other countries, although some of them have, uh, yeah. that they, they say things and I'm like, yeah, but it, what, what, <laughs> there are lots of good things and bad things about every place in the world. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, when we see the pictures, I mean, you mentioned the Caribbean, for example, there mm. are amazing things in the Caribbean, but I I'd rather be living here which some people would think is crazy right yeah yeah some people do no yeah you're right I don't know we're all, we're all just built differently and some people want to go off and some people want to stay I think it's always worth exploring a little bit if if the opportunity um, is there and, and you can even afford to do it or there's no responsibilities tying you to a place for a while then I think travel in and of itself is a wonderful thing there's you know there's so much to be learned there Mm. Um, and you can always bring it 
bring those lessons back home and bring those memories back with you as well. For sure. So if people, I know a lot of people dream of sailing around the world, but there's a lot of uh, things to think about and fear, I think fear of all kinds of things. So what, what if people are thinking about, yeah, I would really like to sail around the world and, and they're afraid, what would you say to kind of help them along the way? I suppose that you'd be surprised how many people are actually doing it. There's a, a huge community living at sea all types and creeds there's there's young families there's elderly retired couples there's there's young folk like James and I so there's a lot of people doing it it's getting safer all the time with the technology that's available the forecasting I mean people from England don't really believe me when I say this because I think we've always been brought up to believe that the weather forecasters haven't got a clue what they're on about (laughs) which I think is linked to the way uh, or the position the UK and the world you know we get some very temperamental and unpredictable weather but actually when you're out at sea the the weather forecasting is incredible it's so precise occasionally it goes wrong as I alluded to with our Atlantic crossing trip but um, in general it's very good so yeah I mean I I wouldn't turn anybody away from the idea of travel or or sailing travel Um, the first thing has always got to be just to begin because the worst bit is the dread before you take that first step and I I do remember that dread before we left on Blue Eye and uh, I think if we hadn't had a big party where we invited our friends and family to see us off I might well not have decided to go I don't know Um, (laughs) but yeah uh, just just go I think has always got to be the invite. Fantastic right so this is the books and travel podcast so what are a few books that you recommend about sailing or travel in general? Mm. So I've not read a huge amount of sailing books, actually, I'm sad to say, but there's two that I've really enjoyed. Uh, one was or is Sea Legs by Guy Grieve, which is a really honest depiction of the year or so that he and his family spent sailing in the Caribbean and then subsequently back to Scotland, which is, is a really fun read. It really inspired me, actually, to be as honest as I could in my writing, because he, he's extremely honest and when he talks about his relationships with um, certain people in his family. And, yeah, I would, I would highly recommend that if anyone's interested in sailing books, as I would also um, Kit Pascoe's book called In Bed with the Atlantic. She is a young woman who sailed with her boyfriend around the Atlantic, and it's all about her overcoming her anxiety. And so that's another very honest account, which I really appreciated. In terms of travel in general, I don't, it depends how strictly you're talking about uh, what makes a travel book. But what I, the books that I always return to, and I think of them as travel in some way, and I don't know if I really need to recommend them because I'm sure many of your readers will be familiar with him, but your listeners, sorry. Um, Gerald Durrell, his childhood memoirs of growing up in Corfu. I think are just brilliant. They're so cosy and funny and um, offer an insight into Corfu and and Greece in general. So I'm sure people would have heard of him and read him. But if not, then I I really urge them towards certainly the first one, My Family and Other Animals. And I would suggest that if you like him, then you might like my book because I'm heavily influenced by him as well. And then again, this is stretching perhaps the definition of what one would call a travel book. But because it's fictional but John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath is an incredible example I think of travel writing certainly in the middle section he really he depicts sort of the rhythm and the cadence of travel in a way that I've not 
read any other travel writer do. So even though that one is slightly perhaps outside the bounds of what is strictly travel writing, I really recommend him as well. Not that he needs any more readers, but yeah, those, those would be my recommendations. Mm, fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online? So they can find them on my website, which is tsdiamond.com. Diamond is not spelled as the stone, but D-Y-M-O-N-D. So that's tsdiamond.com and it's on Amazon and it's on eBay now and it can be requested at your local Waterstones and all the um, places that you would buy your ebooks. And uh, yeah, they can also find my free book, Rungs of Passage, there, which is the prequel to Before We Sailed Around the World, which just depicts a few of the funnier stories just for a little taste as to what went on on that boat. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Tom. That was great. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.